When you think about love stories, you often think about what we were taught as children. You know, once upon a time, blah, 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 and they lived happily ever after. But love stories rarely look or sound or behave like they did in the storybooks or in the movies even. Today, I have a guest who I interviewed who is here to share their very uncommon love story. It's beautiful, it's touching, it's poignant, and it's heartbreaking. But it is no less a beautiful love story. So, let's get into it. Welcome to Big Time Small Talk, stories and observations beyond small talk. I am your host, Jody Rollins, and welcome to season six. I can't believe it. I started this show in the middle of a pandemic, and I didn't know how I was going to do it. I didn't know the technology specifically, what I was going to talk about, if I was going to run out of things to talk about, all of that. And here we are, and I have some, what is it, 118, 119 episodes, and this show is actually listened to in over 35 countries and territories. I think one of the most recent ones was Bulgaria, so welcome Bulgaria. I mean, all over the world, people listen to this show, and I'm forever just honored and touched. Iraq, um, New Zealand, London, parts of Africa, all over the place, Scotland, Ireland. Um, I just thank you, people of Greece. Wow, you know, Mexico. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But of course, to the loyalist of loyal fans in the United States, Canada, and Germany, those are my top listening audience countries. Like, I don't know how Germany became one, but thank you, Germany. Thank you to everyone who has listened all along, and for those of you who kind of came on board a little bit later, and a special thank you to anyone who's just finding the show, and perhaps this is your first time listening. I do this show because I'm passionate about connecting with others, about storytelling, and as my tagline says, stories and observations beyond small talk. I want people to be able to be raw, to open up, to share. I do that. I hope to have interviews that do that. And I hope that the interviews that I do will affect all of our lives in some sort of positive way. The stories of triumph to tribulation, all of it. And so today I have a really extraordinary interview. And let me tell you how this all happened. So time for a little storytelling. My high school, for those of you who have listened since day one, I've talked about it before. I grew up in the suburbs of Denver and I went to a high school that had about 4,000 kids, which is a lot of kids, right? And since I basically had gone to that same school district since third grade, you sort of knew everyone or knew of almost everyone, or at least had a general idea of who knew other people, even though there were 4,000 kids. But there were still, for the most part, of course, people you didn't know. 
<clears throat> and uh, a few weeks back, I saw on Facebook that someone from my high school had passed away. And all of these other classmates of mine who'd graduated the same year that I did were kind of commenting on it. And I was like, who is this person? Did I know him? And um, I didn't recognize the name. So I thought, let me just click on the obituary and maybe there's pictures or some more information. And I just, I knew, I, I realized I did not know this person. But while I was on the obituary page, I thought, well, out of respect, let me at least read this obituary. It's here. And as I began to read it, I couldn't stop reading it. It wasn't your standard obituary. I mean, I don't know. I've read a few in my day, and they're usually like a couple paragraphs long. And a lot of times it's like this person was born here, had kids and got married, whatever, worked here, um, and then died. I mean, it's just sort of the basics, you know, survived by this person was a great person or such a jokester or very loving, whatever. And a lot of times, obituaries don't even say how someone died. It's like very secretive. I've had friends and coworkers and people I've known in the past who died by suicide, and people don't like to talk about it, which I understand, but I believe that helps contribute to the stigma of suicide is the secrecy. And with death, a lot of times people are hurting, obviously, when they're writing these obituaries, or they feel private and it, they feel like, they're very exposed because they have to share about something that's hurting them, you know, the loss of a loved one. So they can be all kinds of things. But a lot of times, again, this is just my experience, the ones that I read aren't very open and, you know, they don't share very personal details about a person, except for this one that I was reading of my deceased classmate. And it turns out he died, um, just like I said, a few weeks ago when the obituary was written, but he graduated from my high school, I think a year or two before I did. So as I'm reading this obituary, I'm just, it, it read like a conversation, like I knew this person and she was sharing just very special moments and the story of the love of her husband who's now deceased. And I thought to myself, I have to interview this woman because the way she wrote the obituary, the things she said, it just, it spoke to me and it touched my heart. And for me, when it comes to interviews, I want to talk to people that are open and willing to share and that I can learn something from. Because I think we all can learn something from people in these kinds of situations. You can take something that's difficult, that's painful, that's tragic, and find something beautiful in it. And so I reached out to Amy, that's her name, and she responded relatively quickly. And I even thought, I don't know, is this going to be offensive to her? She's going to be like, I don't know you. You know, why would I want to be on a podcast? You know, I'm going through a lot in my life right now. I don't need to do this. But something said, reach out to her because of the way that she spoke about her late husband. And it just, it was remarkable. And so when she responded and said that she would like to do the podcast, I was honored. And today I have that interview. I interviewed her just a couple weeks ago and then I was out of town and we kind of went on a little bit of a hiatus, but I have this interview for you. And the one thing I want to tell you that I think is the most important 
This is a story about a woman who married this love in her life, right? And very soon after she found out, I'm sorry, not very soon after she married him, but very soon after she met him, she found out that he had multiple sclerosis or MS. And knowing that he died, it's easy to say this is a story about someone who loves someone who died. But in my opinion, this is actually a beautiful love story, a special and unique love story. And it's easy to think when somebody dies that we shouldn't talk about it or it's just going to bum people out or bring people down. I don't subscribe to that way of thinking. I think that there are gifts in tragedy that when people share their experiences, there are things that we can learn and um, grow from and feel connected to and take from someone else's life and apply those lessons to our own. And that's why I had to do this interview. So Amy shares some really poignant moments. It's emotional, it's difficult for her, but I made her as comfortable as I possibly could. And she told me I made her feel comfortable. We discussed it before, after, and during. She didn't share anything more than she chose to share. I, I always feel that it's important to respect people's boundaries. And she was happy to be open and share this beautiful, touching, and yet heartbreaking love story. So with no further ado, on today's premiere of season six, I have a double episode. So I invite you to, if you're going on a walk, if you're running, if you're working out, if you're listening in the car, in a plane, on a train, on a bus, in your house, in the tub, while doing homework, or at work, or on the way to work, or on the way from work, all the places that people write me and tell me they listen, they say, Jody, I feel like you're in my ear, you're my friend. Thank you for that, by the way. I invite you to just sit back and relax and listen to Amy's love story. And with no further ado, my very special guest, Amy Lineweaver. Amy, hello and welcome to Big Time Small Talk. First of all, how are you doing? Well, thank you for having me, Jody. Um, how am I doing? So it's, I'm doing okay. Um, yeah. And I think that's sort of the big, that's the, that's the easy answer. I think, um, we're in, we're, today is exactly three weeks since Sean passed. And, and I'm finding that I'm forced into a place where I'm the most present I've ever been in my entire life because um, it sort of is, it's the narrow scope with which I can manage my life. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm doing okay. Um, I'm certainly surrounded by lots of people who, who love me and love my family and, um, I have things to do to keep me busy. And so that's all, that's all good. Do you think that you feel present at this moment? Because it's almost as if, if you look forward, it's too heavy. And if you look back, it's also too heavy. It's almost like it's too painful to deal with anything outside of what's in front of you. I think that, that I think that there's some, a real 
ribbon of truth in that. I think that reflecting back on my last, oh gosh, <laughs> 25 years, 26 years, um, is a little startling. It's a little breathtaking. Um, but looking forward at what really the next half of my life looks like is also breathtaking and startling because it's been defined in a very specific way that we'll talk about. And um, maybe it is just sort of my the survival mechanism of, you know, putting one foot in front of the other. And it's really interesting to me because I tend to be a, a future person and a mm -hmm. what if person. Yeah, um, me too. And, and I'm not finding any comfort in, in playing out the what ifs, um, which is, uh, it's almost disorienting. Really. I'm sure. Well, so for me, I think that the reason I even do this show and for my regular listeners, you guys know, life has so many stories. Like everybody's got a story to tell. Even people who are like, oh my God, my life's boring. No, it probably isn't. Everyone's got something. And when I read the obituary you wrote, which was just so sort of random that I ended up reading it, I was just awestruck. It was like, I felt like every word that you wrote I was hanging on and I, I was like, oh, I'll just see, you know, kind of what happened. Did I know this person? And then I, I found myself like I kept going. My husband came in and said something and I was like, wait, I just want to finish reading this. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I just felt like as obviously horrendously painful of a experience and time of your life this is, there's such a beautiful story. And to me, obviously, I don't know all of the details and we'll get into everything. Right there's a love story at the foundation of all of this and um, whatever it is. And that's what kind of drew me to wanting to interview you. So why don't we start at the beginning? How did you and Sean meet? Because I know he went to my high school, but I did not know him. If I ever saw him, I don't know, but I, I don't recognize the name, even though 4,000 kids, I tend to have a good idea who everyone was, but I don't think I knew him. But how yeah, did you get probably was a, a couple grades behind you. And I think I, you probably were with my brother-in-law, but, um, what year did he graduate? Uh, Sean graduated in 87. Oh, okay. So he graduated before me. Yeah. And Mark graduated in 89. So that's, oh, kids. okay. So I gotcha. So how did yeah. you guys meet? So very interesting story. So, um, there's a lot of backstory to Sean um, that's very interesting that, you know, we may or may not get into um, that I, I kind of, I hit on in the obituary, but he was pursuing a PhD in um, electrical bioengineering at the <laughs> University of Washington. And his office was in the fourth floor basement of the medical school next to the morgue. Oh, wow. And he decided he needed to meet girls. Yeah. And so he at that point was in a cochlear implant lab. Um, and he decided that it made a ton of sense for him to take a bachelor's level speech and hearing neuroanatomy class because he knew the information. And I don't know if you know about speech pathology, but it is probably 97% female. Okay. So he felt like his odds were decent. Um, at, at least, you know, meeting people. Okay. And I saw him on the first day 
he was um, clearly the new kid because we were sort of, we were grouped into these cohorts. So he was clearly the new blood. Um, he had a super weirdo haircut. <laughs> it was the eighties. <laughs> sambas with, that were pink and black. He had what? Samba, so soccer shoes. Oh, okay. I remember those. Okay. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, and he wore those up until, you know, the end. Um, that was his uniform and he just sort of exuded cool. Oh. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to go stay high. And so I just went to stay high. That was on a Monday. And by Wednesday we were on a date. Okay. So it was there very quick. Very quick. Very, very quick. And then you dated a while. And then how soon did you get married after you met or? So we dated for, uh, um, two years, we dated for a year, we're engaged for a year, and then got married. And so ultimately what happened was, is he um, was quite a lot older than I was, especially at that point in the game. I mean, being, you know, 20, 19, 20 years old with a 26, 27-year-old is, um, I mean, you know. Yeah. It, it was a thing. Uh, <laughs> but we ended up getting married two years later. And um, yeah, we just progressed in our life. And did he have MS when you met him? Or so, at least did he know he had it? Yeah, so he, he was in the first six months after his diagnosis. And so um, I, I sort of laugh at, you know, the things I noticed about him or the symptoms I noticed about him at that point in the game, because I thought, oh my gosh, these are so serious. He um, clearly had something going on with his speech, which, you know, at that point, I had just been enough in my program to be dangerous, uh, but certainly observed that there was something going on with him. Um, he clearly had problems seeing, and that comes into play with our first date that I told him to meet me um, in this lawn area um, by the by a building at UW, by the, the Hubble Lawn. Uh -huh. and it took him about an hour to find me oh, because wow. there were so many people that he, that he could not see well enough um to find me um so, so he's a little bit po that he was late <laughs> understandably and he explained um why um, so he told you on your first date what's that he told you on your first date that he had ms it was, it was literally the probably the second sentence he ever said to me um which was i just had a hard time finding you i had ms it affects my vision and what did you think when you heard that? Because when you're young, and I don't know about you, but when I was around 19, 20, I didn't think about diseases. I didn't think about death. Everyone was going to live happily ever after, carefree. What were your thoughts when you hear that within an instant on your very first date before you've even left your meeting spot? So, so um, <clears throat> and this is sort of random, but may make sense sort of in the context of the whole story that... Um, I had had people in my family who lived with different kinds of chronic illness, be it uh -huh. cancer, be it heart disease, be it whatever. Uh -huh. And so I wasn't necessarily phobic about someone being unwell. Um, but the MS piece actually gave me pause because the only other person I know or I knew of with MS was a friend of an aunt who became very, very unwell, very, very quickly. And we all knew about Sharon and Sharon being, 
very unwell. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> that was described as sort of an outlier, right? Like that's, you know, that doesn't really happen. It's a rare thing. Um, so I really didn't knit sort of the diagnosis with any specific consequence at that point, nor at nineteen twenty did I have any sort of idea as to what could or would or may happen. I just didn't, I didn't have the scope. I just plain didn't. Okay. And so here you are, you know, you obviously fall in love with Sean and when did he find out that he had MS? I mean, you said like, just what'd you say prior to that by how long? Six to nine months. I mean, it was, it was less than a year. He was, he was still getting second opinions and doing just basic research and reading and that kind of thing and basic orientation um, when I met him. So in that way, it lent itself to kind of getting me up to speed because we both went through this discovery process together and and went down the same rabbit holes together. Um, Because at that point in the mid nineties, the treatment options weren't good. And so it really did lend itself to, you know, nutrition. And there, at that point, we were talking about bee sting therapy and, you know, just tons of supplements and different exercise and, you know, all these things. And so as he was going through this process of mastery of his own health, I was along for the ride. And of course, being, you know, super young, super naive, but not dumb, <laughs> naive. Um, I was sort of ripe to go along for the ride. Like I just sort of just picked up and went along on the circus with Sean. And so as you guys are getting to know each other, or even when you're just a young married couple, how was that relating to this boyfriend and then husband? Because as much as people can deal with whatever illnesses they may have, the way they deal with it with somebody else can be a whole different thing because they have it on their shoulders. There may be fear. They may be like, all right, let's do this together. Or they may be defensive. Like how was Sean when you guys had to relate to each other as you were getting to know each other or as you were newly married? And I think, I think my age and my relative lack of experience with life really did actually work in our favor with this one, because I didn't have any sort of um, hard and fast expectations for what I thought a relationship should be. So it was totally fine that MS became the main character. And really that was sort of set the pattern for the rest of our relationship, which is we built a life and a family and rhythms and patterns and expectations around MS and around where Sean was. And we did, a ton of anticipatory um, work and accommodation around Sean because managing him, if, if Sean were going to participate, which of course was essential, then the MS pieces as big or as small as they were, depending upon the time have to, had to absolutely be managed. And whether that was accommodating his diet or, um, giving him opportunities to rest or making sure he didn't get too hot or making sure he didn't have to walk too far. So these were all the things that just sort of were baked into any formula we had or any sort of um, plans that we made or any sort of um, opportunities that came our way is, is how is this going to fit? And, and 
in many ways, it was very isolating because if Sean what couldn't be safely accommodated or reasonably accommodated, or um, we didn't have faith that he'd be able to find food or that he wouldn't be able to rest or he wouldn't be able to do whatever, then we elected not to do. And so um, that just sort of became your life. Where, just a basic ethic of our family. I, I don't know how to say it any more plainly than that, that it's just was how it was. How we did business. It kind of sounds like in the beginning at the very, at least it was the three of you, Sean, you and MS in oh. this relationship working through everything. Oh, a hundred percent. And absolutely. I, I equate it almost to having more than one child that you have a relationship <laughs> with child A, you have a relationship with child B, but then you also have to manage the relationship between child A and child B. Yeah. And that's almost the bigger job. So, so there were my feelings and my desires and my whatever's. There were his feelings, his desires, his whatever's. And then there was the access point. And the access point was totally always managed and mediated through MS. And it it really absolutely was the main character. And so as you decided to even marry him, was there ever a second when you were like, is this something that I can handle for the rest of my life? Or were you just thinking, you know what, this is what it is. I love this person. Let's do this. I mean, truthfully, I, I had, a, I had a moment. That's <laughs> normal. The head where, where I just thought this is big. Um, but also I think my naive, naivete lent itself to not really knowing exactly what it was going to be. And truthfully, um, even if you would have asked, if we would have had this conversation a year ago, I would not think that we were, we would be in this place. Um, meaning wouldn't be in this place, meaning what? Meaning that Sean would be, would be still alive. I mean, truthfully, this last year has been, um, well, the last five years have been, it's been its own thing. So, and none of that was anything that I could conceive of. Um, you know, it's, At that point. it's interesting that you say that because as I'm listening to you speak, I married a man with five children mm -hmm. and obviously stepchildren, it's nothing like MS at all. So I don't want you to think you, I'm even you know, quitting. Each, it's not a competition. <laughs> and we each have our challenges. And we yes. Have what we're given. And that's, yeah. Well, when you were saying like your naivete, like I thought so many things like, oh, um, I've never really dated a guy with kids, but I was a little cautious, but I'm like, yeah, we can do this. And if I had known then what I know now, it's not that I would make a different decision because you don't know life's different, who can say, going back for it, whatever. But I think that the fact that I was naive actually helped me make the decision to marry a man with five children. Because if I if I had been a little more hardened, a little more experienced, I probably wouldn't have done it because it's so hard. And maybe that's similar to what you could be saying. And I never want to say, you know, either put words in your mouth or anyone, but a lot of times people say, well, then does that mean you wouldn't have done it? Who knows with life? You know, you make the decisions that you have placed in front of you and you do the best that you can. So. Absolutely, absolutely. But I also think, Maybe that naivete, I mean, maybe you could substitute the word optimism. Maybe, oh, that's good. Yes. And I like to think of myself as sort of more of a realistic optimist. Like I, I tend to always, I tend to believe that next day is, the next day will always be better than the last, right? That that's sort of, even as I'm sitting here today, I know that tomorrow is going to be better than today. 
See, I like that. I I tend to be a little more of the, I don't even like to say pessimist, but I tend to think, okay, start worrying and start future tripping and all of these things. But then on other things, I, I can think positively as well. So I think that's a beautiful thing that you're able to do this. And I guess my next question would be, so when it came to having children, because you have two children, right? Is it a boy and a girl? Yes. How how did that decision come into play? Because maybe you were thinking, nope, let's just stick with the three of us, MS, you and me. Or did you always go, let's do this? What were your thought processes and the conversations that you and Sean had about bringing children into this really special situation? So Sean wanted to be a dad and Sean was 30. And Sean, um, and I, at that point, I mean, the other piece of this, is I, I am a realistic optimist. I, I, I operate from a sense of reality, but I think that things are going to be just fine. But also, um, I'm a little bit risk not averse. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the other piece that I'm, I'm not afraid to risk at all. And I just thought, you know what? Just throw it up in the air. At that <laughs> point, I had just graduated from grad school. It was like, you know what? I mean, in retrospect, it was just colossally, I mean, there was so little decision making, um, but I got pregnant. So, and we had Aiden, and we were our little family. And 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 Aiden, temperament wise, was just dreamy, uh-huh. um, because he, especially as a little guy, was super. Um, he couldn't have been. He could not have been. We could have asked for a gentler soul. Um, to join our little group. And he always has been flexible. He always has sort of gotten it. Um, And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, he just sort of just fell into the group and always had a lot of personal independence and a lot of personal intelligence, but also a lot of um, flexibility. And so that was, he just, he he felt right in. How long had you both been married when you had your first little little Aiden? Eighteen months. I mean, oh, so it was relatively soon. So it wasn't like, well, yeah, we've been five yeah, years. And, yeah, okay. Yeah. And then so when we, you we didn't sit around. <laughs> you got you got busy. <laughs> when you had your second child, how how I don't know how far apart the two kids are. Well, they're six and a half years apart, and that's, oh. that. This is where sort of the MS comes into play, and so. Um, as Sean became meteor, it became apparent to me that I couldn't do two small children and Sean. Okay. And when you and say meteor, what was happening to him physically or what, how was it affecting your relationship? What were the things that were like the big things that stood out at that time? Well, so he started needing assistance to walk um, relatively soon after Aiden was born, like within 18 months. So he was walking with a cane. This is when Sean really started to fall. This is mm. when Sean really started to demonstrate some um, some mood shifts and some things that are pretty typical with people with MS. Um, and he 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 was he required management and he required um, a lot of attention. And at that point. He was finishing up his PhD, he was working, he was doing all these other things. And so all of that required a lot. I mean, I, I hesitate to use the word management. I know I've already used it, but it 
that's what he required because um, he had such a hard time, even at those stages, prioritizing and organizing and getting himself um, arranged in such a way that he could do what he could do. So here's the other piece of this, that Sean was brilliant. And I don't know if that's um, implied. That's pretty much what I got from the obituary that you were reading, the work that he did and his passion. One of the reasons he picked, he um, knew that something was wrong was that he failed his NASA physical. Oh my gosh. A NASA physical. Yeah. I mean, wow. He was that guy. So before, and he was that guy and he was, he, I can't think of someone who was more self-actualized. I mean, wow. truthfully, like brilliant, good looking, super athletic, you know, super ambitious, super smart. I mean, all the, he was all the things. Checked all the boxes. Checked all the boxes. But what happened first for him sort of cognitively and that, and this is sort of in retrospect talking, is he could not figure out how to do step one, step two, steps three, step four. Now, once he was pointed in the right direction, he could do anything because he was brilliant um, and objectively so. Um, and so he required a lot of that and just almost secretarial when, when you say um, step one, step two, are you saying, so if he was given a task, you know, lift this box up, bring it outside, put it in the trunk or whatever, I don't even know, but would it be sort of this moment where he was like, I know I need this to be in the trunk, but do I need to put on my shoes first? Do I have to unlock the, like, are you saying something like that? Yeah, almost like, but on a more, much more higher level stuff. So it was like, okay, so, so this is what his PhD thesis. His PhD thesis was, um, imaging of a guinea pig cochlea and designing a, an electrical model and different supposing different levels of excitation in these models. Well, to get <laughs> these models, they were all stored on a computer. Now this is the nineties, early aughts. So there were, there were no good data, data storage solutions. He couldn't figure out how to get the slides and get them onto his computer so he could do the analysis that he needed to do his thesis. Okay. And so it required me to say, let's go steal the computer, <laughs> which we did. Um, you know, it, things like that. Like, and then he had to present his, um, his thesis. He had, he did his, his thesis and, and he did his defense and he had to do all these slides. He couldn't figure out how to project his slides. Okay. So, it required me saying, and at this point, this was the solution. Let's print them on transparency film and put them on a overhead projector. Okay, so if he obviously, if he like didn't that. have like MS, he would have been able to easily do that. But his brain was just not assisting him in those kinds of tasks. Correct. I see. And whether that was an MS thing or like a 160 IQ thing, <laughs> I don't know. Could be. I don't know. I read it to be sort of like he was almost overwhelmed with <laughs> with too much stuff that he couldn't figure out the the, the basics to get stuff done yeah so as everything's progressing one of the things i think about when i think about men and my husband in particular because and he will even admit this like i'm sort of an old school person um with how 
women deal with things versus how men deal with things. Obviously, everyone's different and there's variations, but men have ego, at least in my opinion, and physiologically. How does a, a, a smart, like brilliant, not just smart, athletic, good looking, you know, he had the world was going to be his oyster. Oh, 100%. I mean, going to do something with NASA. How does he watch his body and his mind just not do what he wants it to do? How did that take effect on him and dealing with life and with the family? Well, I think what he found, and so I think it was this really interesting phenomenon where he went from this person who did all the things this person who did one thing and his one thing was work and what he did and what our whole family did um it wasn't just me it was my kids and 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 sort of everyone you know distilling out from that that we all were geared around supporting sean and his work and it was the last normal thing he could do because of that ego right Mm -hmm. it was his last tie to normal and also he as an achiever was super successful at work um, and super productive and was recognized as such. So um, that, that really became kind of our mission and his mission is that he developed this work ethic. Well, he didn't, he had a work ethic. So let me just put this, there's no one more tenacious than Sean. And that, that just is probably his essential trait, right? Like that's his, his core trait is mm-hmm. this, incredible tenacity um and so he was able to drive himself beyond the point that anyone else would ever want for themselves um so he drove his body as a means of supporting his mind Hmm. really until he could not anymore do you think that was almost um a way for him to, because in life, we all want to have some sort of control over something, even though we control very little. But do you think yes. that was a way for him to sort of maintain control? He can't control MS. He can't control symptoms. What's going to happen? What's not going to happen? But he knows what he knows, and he can maybe hyper-focus on this work, which I forgot to mention when you had said cochlear. My understanding is that's all about hearing, cochlear implants, cochlear part of the the ear canal or something. I, I assume that's right. the kind of work he was doing, which is yeah, really yeah, serious yeah, and yeah. important work. So, yeah, yeah he, was, he, he was super, super, super passionate about it. Um, and yeah, no, he developed this this pattern, and literally, I think the only day he took off was Christmas, where he would get up at midnight, wow. he'd work until four, he'd sleep until seven. He'd take the kids to school. He'd work from, you know, seven, eight until noonish. Then he'd sleep until three. Then he'd pick up the kids. Then he'd work for a couple more hours. Then he'd eat dinner. Then he'd sleep and he'd get it back up at midnight. So he did this seven days a week, 365 days a year. Because that's what he had to do to maintain the expected productivity. And, And I'm talking, he was using pencils in his teeth to type he was he was using one hand to direct another hand to find letters on a keyboard and this is a guy who's programming wow so imagine the volume of stuff he had to produce with 
his teeth and one finger. I mean, it was just, if, if you had, if you didn't see this, it would, it's hard to believe that anyone could do this, but he did that for absolutely for years. So then how do you have a marriage? How do you feel cherished and cared for and loved and adored if he is focused on all this work and obviously the children as well? Where are you in all of this? Well, and I think this is sort of the interesting piece about my relationship with Sean. Um, I think there are lots of kinds of love. I think there is no one in this world that I will ever love. Like I love Sean. Um, do, did we have a typical marriage? No. Did we honor each other? Yes. Did we know who each other were? Yes. Did we absolutely share um, each other's souls? Or yes. Did we absolutely know each other the best? Were we the best of friends? Yes. Do I think that we had a deep romantic love? No. But I think, um, As I describing how I feel about Sean, it feels bigger than that. Now, it hmm. used to be my, again, my lack of experience talking. Um, I, I felt and I feel like my feelings for Sean are so big. And I know that his feelings for me were so big. Um, and maybe that's a, a dependency or some sort of other other relationship we cultivated. Um, that that's that's what we had and so that was my expectation was is that um this is what it was beyond a friend beyond i don't even know how to describe it well i think super duper intense and i and i um there is no question as to how much i love and adore him it's so touching and uh, I'm sorry it, it breaks you up, but no, it's fine. and I appreciate you actually, you know, digging into all of this. And it sounds like, you know, in many ways, like you said, it's, it was bigger than the two of you. Like oh. you have this family unit plus knowing his work is so important that your lives were sort of, not so much about oh, I need to feel love and he needs to feel love. It was just this magical, special, unique thing that was your family. Yes. In order to support Sean. Yes. You know? And I also think there's a fair amount of sort of Gen X um punk rockiness to this in that <laughs> How so? we both have a lot of work ethic. We both have the expectation of independence. Okay. We both had the expectation that no one else was going to make this happen except for us, and also had the expectation that no one else was going to define um, what we were except for us. And so I think there was a healthy amount of that thrown in into the mix as well. Well, there is something um, special in relationships when you feel like it's you and your partner against the world, or maybe in your case, you and your family against MS because no one you you develop this really strong bond and no one can break this because you guys are going to fight against the evil that is ms and, and and i would say i would actually go so far as to say i think yes ms was the target but it became you know it became 
there became notes that were bigger than that, you know, the whole life and death thing, the whole, um, you know, some different kinds of issues that came up and it's, and it's, um, yes. And, and as someone who sort of has a naturally advocating personality that, that, that hit and, and being able to take up a cause and, and be able to be mouthy on his behalf, which, you know, <laughs> a huge part of my identity. And I will say that that's the part of my sadness as well is that, who am I and who are we as a family without Sean as the center? He was our, he was our son, right? And we're yeah. orbiting around him yeah. and our roles are defined in relationship to him. So who are we now without him? I definitely, as I mentioned, my husband is not sick in any way. Um, but I can completely relate to you about that because that's actually one of the things I say to my husband. I'm like, you are the son. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like the house concusses when he leaves. Mm -hmm. Like, he is the center of our family. He brings us so much joy. I have a daughter and, of course, the five stepkids. And he really is such a presence in my life that I can understand what you're saying. Because, obviously, in my opinion, based on what you've been saying, Sean was, in a way, larger than life. And it was this really unique thing just for your family, you know? Yeah, and, and, and I will, you know, yeah, Sean was a person who was, who was very, very unwell. And Sean was a person who persisted. And Sean was a pers- person who achieved beyond beyond the, the limitations he was given. But more than that, he would have been extraordinary regardless. He was just... Um, just a force of a person and really... Um, incomparable. I mean, I can't think of anyone like Sean and, and the gifts he was given, but also the, the challenges he was given and, and what he continued to do and how he managed to keep going. I think um, he is, he had a big, 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 big presence. And how did this, I mean, I'm just sitting here in awe. Um, It's, it's, yeah, I I mean, I'm supposed to ask the questions and everything, but it's, I'm like, now I'm thinking, wow, I'm like, did I bump into him in the halls? Because I just feel like I I would love to be around that kind of energy and just witness it, you know? How did this affect your children when they're old enough to understand? And, you know, one of the things I saw when in your read in your obituary that kind of stuck out to me, I think you had said that he, he began to fall so many times, like, you know, hurting himself. severely how does all of this and all of those things which are scary i had a father who was chronically ill it was sort of the norm but it was scary too it's this weird alternate universe where okay that's that's how it is my dad's sick but this is scary how does that affect your kids or did it affect your kids each of my kids at at one point said made some sort of comment that they feared sirens and and my daughter said this because the fire station was right across from her elementary school and she used to actively fear when there was a call to the fire station that that was going to be for her dad and so i think everyone there was an expectation that he was going to fall and and i and i and really really hurt himself i mean um i mean i'm talking broken collarbones broken elbows rotator cuffs concussions broken off teeth i mean big big falls he was a big guy Wow. Um, so six foot two ten, falling dead ass onto the floor. That's a lot. Wow. Um, so there was an expectation that we had to 
rescue him uh-huh. all the time. And so, so when he, ha- so we were always sort of on high alert. So when he fell, we all scrambled. And so that's one of the things that's really interesting about the now is that there's no emergencies anymore. And we're all just sitting around and we don't quite know what to do. Is um, it, do you have the sense in a way that you sort of were holding your breath for all those years and now you have to find how to exhale and yes. inhale again in a totally different way? Yes. And emergencies, and, and when I say emergencies, I mean, you know, he, he's fallen and he can't get up. He's fallen and he's hit his head. He's fallen and, you know, something happened. And so it required all of us to, to pitch in and, and we were all on high alert for this. And, and I think there was some resentment that went with that. So from was there resentment from Sean resentment from you? I mean, when, when you hear all that you've gone through, I would assume there would have been resentment. First of all, how long were you all married? Did you say 25 some odd years? He died. He died four days short of our 24th anniversary. Wow. So I say 24. I think we earned those last couple of days. Um, I think you probably did. I think we did. Um, I think we all, I, I think, the answer is yes. I think he resented that his body was, uh, he hated his body. Yeah. He hated the body he was in because the bo- his body was his, his, he had to overcome his own body. Um, and that wasn't something he was used to. And that wasn't something he thought he was going to have to do. Huh. Um, and I think that that was actually the essential grief for him was his body failed him. Huh. But then it was the rest of us who, you know, and it seems trivial now, but it's like, can I just watch my show or read my book or do my thing or talk on the phone without you, you know, following or needing something? I mean, and, and, and being needed that much gets to be a lot. I'm sure. I, I mean, I can't imagine at the same time. You know, I, when I was writing my questions down for this interview, I had all these questions and, you know, I'm thinking, do I ask this, do I not ask this, and things that I, I thought about. And one of the things that I was thinking, maybe I shouldn't ask this, so feel free to not answer, what were the hardest, darkest moments? Were there times when you thought, I can't take this anymore, or he was like, I can't take this anymore, or you felt like this system that you guys had created wasn't going to sustain itself because of everything that was happening. What were those dark moments that you went through and how did you pull yourself out of them? You know, if you did, I guess. Well, and, and I'll speak in broad strokes. I mean, we were married for 24 years and had two kids and two careers. So, yeah. um, and we're both sort of alpha dog personalities. <laughs> so I think while we were well suited and we understood each other, I think we often bumped up against each other. <laughs> And I would say that there were, uh, like all relationships, have rhythms of ease and time and rhythms of disease. And um, truthfully, I think the thing that kept us to, well, a couple things that kept us together. Number one, um, we both were too stubborn to not keep going. We were both too practical to want to divide our stuff. Okay. <laughs> and, and truthfully, and, and this, this is sort of the more, let's, let's unpack this. I would no more have left Sean than I would left my own children. Yeah. I felt very, very responsible for him, especially um, as he became more unwell. And, and 
there was a CBC um, documentary on caretaking. Um, it was on five years or so ago. And there was this one line that really sticks with me. And, and this documentary was about Alzheimer's disease. So different illness, but same, similar sorts of pattern and similar sorts of family involvement. But there was the daughter of this woman who said, it's, it's not the love that makes it easy to take care of them. It's the love that makes it hard to say no. Oh, yeah. I think that that, I think that there was a ton of truth in that. That it, the love that I felt for him didn't make it easy to stay, but it made it absolutely impossible to go. Wow. I think that's, that is a really poignant and perfect way of, you know, stating that because, you know, you think of things about in, in your life, even just taking care of a child when you're up early and up late or whatever, and you're just like, ah, oh, you want to pull out your hair, you want to go back to sleep. But because you love them, you do the stuff that sometimes sucks, you know? Yeah. So I think it's all the same, no matter what kind of love it is. And, you know, I, I do have to take a quick break here. Um, when we come back, there's a couple questions. I mean, I have more questions, but I really want to ask you, and maybe you can think about these things. For me, I think when you experience loss and when you have someone in your life who has chronic illness, it's a chapter and verse of loss. There's a bunch of little tiny ones, and then there's the big catastrophic ones. And then unfortunately, if the person passes, there's the end loss. And my question for you, the first one that I want to talk about after the break is through all those losses, there had to have been beautiful, special, unique, one of a kind moments that you wouldn't trade for anything that you would not have gotten if you had a cookie cutter, A plus B equals C life. Because I believe that with all of these kinds of things, with that kind of pain and, and like I said, the loss, there's gifts and there's beauty in it. And so that would kind of be my second question. You know, what kind of gifts do you think you got from all of this and this experience or maybe even Sean? So the gifts and what are the humorous things that you just, you, you know, you look back and you go, oh my gosh, I laugh at all of that. So those are the things I want to ask you. We'll take a quick back, quick break, and we'll be right back and uh, we'll hear what Amy has to say. So stay with me. I'll be right back. Hey, it's me again, Jody Rollins, and I wanted to take a moment to tell you how you can stay in touch with the show. You can follow me on Instagram at Jody Rollins and be sure to check out my Insta stories for the most updates about the show. Or you can follow me on Twitter at Jody's Box or write the show at Big Time Small Talk Podcast at gmail.com. And if you'd really like to do me a favor, please go ahead and click those five stars if you're enjoying the show. If you're not, please keep listening until you do. Otherwise, it would also help the show if you would write a written review. I know every podcast all over the world always asks for the written review, but I would greatly appreciate it. It helps people find the show and understand whether or not they should click in the first place. So thank you guys for keeping in touch with the show. For those of you who do, you can also leave me a voice message. Sometimes I play them on the show. 
I love hearing from you. I respond to everyone that writes me. Thank you guys for listening for my longtime listeners. And thank you if you are brand new as well. Okay, if you're like me, you're already thinking about Christmas shopping. Yes, I know. I am that person. I like to plan ahead. But it's already October, right? And I do have friends and family members who have fall and wintertime birthdays. Plus, I like to shop for myself, too. And one of my favorite places to shop is Cozy Earth. I mean, I'm not much of a in-person shopper anymore, but I shop online at Cozy Earth because it's just bing, bam, boom, pick what you want, check out, you're done. And it's just easy. And I love Cozy Earth, and I've been working with them for several months. And in fact, I got from them a loungewear set. It's navy blue, it's a crew neck, it's got the matching pant, and um, I actually did a uh, review of the outfit and the company. It's on my YouTube. I did it last summer. And if you want to check out the review, it's at Jody Rollins on YouTube, and you can see the whole thing. But I promised you guys in that review that I would let you know about this outfit. Did it fade? Did it pill? Was it disfigured and stretched out after a while? Did it look kind of worn? No, I have washed it multiple times, dried it multiple times. I, my baby has hung on it. I have a dog with pet hair. I've traveled with it. I've crumpled it up. You name it. I'm not even exaggerating because I would only talk about a company that I believe in and the products that I believe in. It no joke looks exactly like the day I got it. So if you guys want to do a little online shopping at Cozy Earth, I have got a discount code for you. Just go and click on the link in my show notes, a special link, and then use the discount code that's there for you. It's CE dash big time. That's CE as in Cozy Earth dash big time. But you got to use the link. I almost said code. You got to use the link in my show notes in order to get 40% off. Not just 40% off of this or that in a small section, 40% off of every single thing you purchase at Cozy Earth. So I highly recommend it. I mean, everything is cozy. They don't just have loungewear. They also have pajamas, bath, bedding, really cozy and luxurious sheets, all kinds of gifts and stuff for yourself. So click the link in my show notes, use CE-BigTime, and you will get 40% off of everything on Cozy Earth. I mean, Cozy Earth has been on Oprah's favorite things list for four years running. So it can't be that bad, can it? I mean, it is, it's really cool. So if you're thinking about getting some of your Christmas shopping done, I highly recommend you check out Cozy Earth. And don't forget to click on the link. Welcome back. So thank you guys for listening. Thank you to all who continue to, you know, reach out to the show. Please don't forget to subscribe. Please don't forget to share the show with your friends, your family members, your enemies, whoever. I just appreciate every single one of you 
who continue to help this show grow. I've got a lot of fun things planned for the future of this show. So thank you guys also for coming along on the ride with me. And it's been really interesting today being able to talk to Amy. So I'm glad that I have the opportunity to do this as well. I'm definitely going to be doing more interviews as time progresses. So Amy, back to you. What would you say was or were, if there were several things, among all the losses and all of the pain and all of the suffering, were the special sort of magical things, the beautiful things, the humorous things that you wouldn't trade for the world that you know you wouldn't have gotten if you did live a sort of cookie cutter life with Sean? Well, I think I think it's it's, it's sort of appreciating the small moments. And I think the other thing about Sean is he was freaking hilarious. I mean, <laughs> really, he, he had impeccable timing and he was dry. And so, um, I mean, I was driving my daughter to school today and she was kind of, you know, in a, or yesterday and she was kind of in a mood and I said, oh, you're crabby on Tuesday, which is a Simpsons reference. And I, and I thought that's something that Sean and I would say, that you're, you know, <laughs> so it's all those inside jokes and all those things. And also the other thing about Sean is, is the one thing I asked of him when we got together or got married is I told, asked him to never make it dull and to always make an adventure and to, um, and we did, we moved around, we've traveled the world, we've done all kinds of things um, and had all kinds of those moments. And, and honestly, the, the amount of time we spent together lent itself to a level of emotional intimacy that I don't know would be possible um, under a, other circumstances. I mean, we we were capable of such honesty with each other oh. um, and i mean honesty and so much um fear and vulnerability with each other what um, was the first word you said it kind of cut out something in vulnerability and vulnerability with each other i'm sorry i missed it and again so operated with um a sense of real integrity each other. And Somehow, think, it, it, I'm sorry to interrupt you, it cut out again, something and vulnerability. Oh, weird. Care? Care. Okay. I'm sorry. Care. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, and also with a sense of integrity toward each other. And, and I think um, we shared a lot of that sensibility. And and, and hmm. I mean, I hate to get woo-woo, but I mean, it, there was something about him and something about me that really... Um, created an intensity of a relationship and an intimacy of the relationship that I can't conceive of in any other way. Um, wow. And it wasn't necessarily entirely romantic at all. It was just, we absolutely adored each other and we absolutely trusted each other and we had absolute faith in each other um, through it all. Well, that definitely think, sounds like I, a gift, uh, you know. Yeah, to, and, and Sean, one of the last things he said to me um, was he looked at me and he said, we just didn't give enough time, did we? Oh. We didn't. We didn't. 
There just so never is. That's the special part is that even after 24 years and even after 24 years, hard years, mm-hmm. dog years, we still, we still would have treated it for more time. Um, I mean, that sounds like that that's the beauty. Say. What was that? And to me, that says a lot. That yeah. We would, even though it was hard and even though it took a lot, have more time with each other would have been would have been worth it i mean that right there is a beautiful thing to be able to say you know so many people are married for three years or 30 years and they can't stand each other you know they just can't and they want out or maybe they quit and whatever and that's everyone's choice to do whatever they choose to do with their marriage but absolutely that's such a beautiful thing that he said because at the end of the day you know, having those special moments and having those gifts and having that bond, that intimacy that you're talking about, that's so special. You know, that's your own thing that you guys created that no one else will ever completely understand because that's between you and Sean and your family. And that, oh, I keep hitting my microphone. That is so, you know, personal and unique. And it's, I'm sure in some ways, it's something you want to sort of hold on and say, this is ours. No one will ever understand what you guys had, no matter how they knew you, I would assume. It's just, it was your thing and your family. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Um, and there's a sadness there too, because we shared so much together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it's songs or, you know, one-liners or, you know, stupid stuff or, you know, serious stuff that now that he's gone, so much of, of that part of my life and that history is gone too. Um, and I'm wondering kind of where I'm, where I'm at, you know? That, um, that sounds heartbreaking because, I mean, you create this life in this world with your partner, whoever you're married to, or if it's a long-term relationship or whatever, and then the loss of it, it's not just the person it's like you had mentioned, it's all the inside jokes and the little things that you kind of, you know, you laugh at when you're in the car by yourself and that person who is usually there, like you might call to say, remember this thing? Cause this happened and this and this, when they're not there, right. it's just, you know, takes your breath away. Yeah. And I guess, you know, that would lead me to my, my next question. Like, were there things that surprised you the most about this whole experience where, you know, if somebody asked you the day before you got married, do you think X is going to happen or Y is going to occur? You would have said no. And then while you're in it, was there anything that was just a complete shock in all of this before he well, passed away? Well, I would say, I mean, and he really followed sort of a classic progressive long, slow slide. And that, and that lent itself to sort of him, you know, getting worse and then we would adapt and then, you know, we would go a year or two, then he'd get worse and we'd adapt and he'd go a year or two. And so we went through this whole pattern where, where we, will, we were able to adapt. Um, I guess what, <laughs> and this sounds so dumb because I, I had done all the, the reading and, you know, did all the things. And about five years ago, he became septic. Um, okay. Which can you describe that to my listeners who may not know what that is? So septic um, is based, it's blood poisoning. So he he got a UTI that then um, accelerated super quickly and infected his blood. So he became 
dreadfully ill in a very short period of time. Hmm. Um, and I'm sitting there in the emergency room with him, having transported him there myself. He's just dripping sweat, has a super high fever. I mean, just sicker than I've ever seen a person be sick in my entire life. And um, I'm looking at the doctor going, I don't know what's wrong with him. He's just got MS, but I don't know what this is. <laughs> and, um, you know, when can I take him home? And they looked at me like I was high. Um, he ended up going to the ICU for three days. Um, and then it occurred to me, and I almost, it was like my brain couldn't conceive of this fact, that this is how people with MS die. Yeah. People with MS die because they become septic. I mean, that that basically is the mechanism by which people die with MS. Okay. And after, at that point, 20 years with him, I still hadn't put one and one, one, and one together enough to recognize that, oh, no, there's, there's the possibility of death here. Um, and so that was a huge eye-opener for me. And, and it also sort of spelled a different point of his function. So he totally lost the ability to walk after that. Um, mm. But what was really fascinating to me was once he stopped working, um, how apparent it became to me that he was fueled solely on willpower and tenacity um, and how quickly his physical condition deteriorated once his mind had nothing to do. <sighs> And once he was no longer willing himself, the speed with which he deteriorated was heart-stopping. So he went from working. So, so, so the same month he started collecting social security disability was the same month he went into hospice. Wow. Um, he just fell apart. And I guess that's not really surprising when you think about the human condition, like we all need something to look forward to and something to care about and something to do and something to be involved in. I mean, we saw that with the pandemic, with isolation and people feeling like they're disconnected and, you know, the mental health illnesses that rose in this country because of that, you know, watching somebody whose work is so important to him, yeah. you know, it, it makes sense. And that's yeah. so tragic. It, it, it was absolutely, um, I would not have thought it would have gone that fast, given how slowly he had gone um, up until that point. Mm -hmm. It was just amazing. And so when he did pass, was it kind of like a shock or it was a slow progression towards the end because he was still sick and just, you know, I mean, I don't want to ask any personal questions about how you found him or if he was in the hospital or whatever, but, you know... Um, it, well, I mean, so he was in hot, he was in a whole hospital. So I, I would say that even up until the last day and the people who were coming in were looking at me like I was absolutely utterly insane. I would say even up until the last 12 hours of his life, I was waiting for him to pull a rabbit out of a hat because he was always, always found a way to, to make something happen. Huh. and to pull a rabbit out of a hat or to make some magic happen or to find a way. Um, I was, I was waiting for him to pull the rabbit. And, and when it truthfully, when he passed, that was the shocking part was he ran out of rabbits. He ran out of magic. 
<laughs> and um, that's a hard thing to, to um, that's a hard thing to rationalize when I think about who Sean is. And that, I mean, that makes perfect sense because, you know, 20 plus years, you guys were a machine. You found a way to be a well-oiled machine and you just kept going and kept going. And then it, of course it would be a surprise and a shock. Yeah. Even though it wasn't, I mean, even though, but he, he kept going and, um, yeah. And he just, he just couldn't anymore. Um, and, and I guess the most shocking thing to me, um, is I, I saw him the next day and he looked amazing. <sighs> he looked amazing. He looked like an eighties rock star cover. I mean, he looked <laughs> amazing. And it occurred to me that I didn't know what he looked like anymore without struggle on his face. <sighs> Well, there's the last rabbit he pulled out of his hat then. That was the last rabbit. That's the gift. Yeah, I had no idea what he looked like without struggle on his face. Wow. And, and it was shocking. He was, it, it was shocking. See, it's those things. I'm so glad you shared this. It's those things why I wanted to do this interview, because it's so easy to be afraid of, of death or dealing with you know, people who have chronic illness and the like, because everyone's so afraid, but we're all not making out of this alive. We're not making out of this life alive. Surprise, you know, and everyone we know also isn't going to, and we can sit and be afraid, which of course there's going to be some amount of fear. That's just human. But at the same time, there's that magic that those special things, like I would, I didn't know where you were going with that. And, you know, maybe in some, like you were saying, in some sort of metaphysical, otherworldly, different dimension, that was Sean's last special gift for you. I mean, to see him without struggle for all those years couldn't have been more beautiful, I would assume. It, it was, it was oddly reassuring oh. um, because... And I didn't appreciate, and, the, and although we were in it, it's like, you know, once you, when you're in the middle of the hurricane, you can't feel how strong the wind is. Of course. Um, so. I had no idea how big, how big of an ask it was for him to keep going. Yeah. Um, and I'm, and I'm glad he, I'm, I'm glad he didn't have to do it anymore. And no longer suffers. Although I'm dreadfully sad, it's him forever. But I don't, um, I don't begrudge him his peace either. Yeah. Well, Amy, you know, as I had said to you when I reached out to you to do this interview, I obviously don't know the whole story. I read the obituary, but I knew there was a beautiful love story in there, and that's what you shared. And it may be untraditional, but who cares? It was yours and it still is yours. Yeah. And, and I'm, I think we loved each other in the way that people who have absolutely, it was almost parental in that we had absolute trust. We had absolute belief in each other and we had absolute, um, 
assurance that we would be there for each other in the ways that we could be. And some people will live in, in relationships and be in relationships and never have any of that. They just won't. Right. And you were lucky enough to have that in Sean. And it sounds like he was really lucky to have you and your kids and I'm sure friends and family members as well. Well, Amy, thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing your story. It is a beautiful story. And I, <laughs> I wish you nothing but the, the best of healing. And, you know, I mean, I never know what to say to somebody who's lost, lost somebody other than to say, I just wish you well. I really thank do. You. Thank, you. thank you. Thank you so, so much. Wow. So I just, um, I've just hung up with Amy here. <sighs> you know, it's interesting because when I thought about doing this particular interview, it's a little, a little scary. And as you guys know, who have listened to the show for a, a long amount of time, I rarely do interviews. And I thought to myself, why? I'm a very curious person. I like the idea of interviews, but I wanted to do, and I still, I want to do interviews with people who have interesting stories to tell that are what the foundation of this show is about, stories and observations beyond small talk. I don't want to do interviews about Big Brother. I mean, I may do some in the future. I'll never say never. I don't want to do interviews about, you know, what I, I, I call yuck, yuck interviews. There's a place and a time for that where people are just push, 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 promote, 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 whatever they're promoting. And it's great. It's important to promote things. I've been on shows to promote, but I love being able to just listen to stories. And I don't know Amy at all. And as I mentioned in the beginning of the interview, didn't know her husband. I have to go look in my yearbook and um, see if he kind of looked familiar. I did see some pictures of him and you guys can see pictures of him and of Amy in the promotional materials. I keep hitting my microphone because I talk with my hands. Um, but you just, you never know what you're going to get with an interview at this level. You know, maybe if I'm a, a Joe Rogan or um I can't even think of who else, all the huge, uber, super duper big podcasters, which maybe someday I will be, I don't know. Um, they have producers who can interview them and kind of see how the guests will do in advance and kind of get a feel, especially if it's celebrities, you know, good guests versus bad guests, but you don't know. And even if they are quote unquote, a good guest, someone who'll speak, you know, not answer questions in just yes and no and not go on and on forever, you don't know if they have a good story to tell. And I had a strong sense based on the obituary that she wrote that she would, and she did. And I hope you guys feel the same way. And I definitely want to do more interviews. I think, you know, when it comes to death and loss, whether it's a chronic illness or a sudden shock, that's actually one of the things like I'll sometimes ask my husband these hypothetical questions and, or friends like, which, which would you prefer? that I die suddenly so that you didn't have to like prepare yourself and have all these instances of loss? Or would you prefer to not deal with the shock and I get something where I gradually deteriorate? Well, both suck, right? Both are gonna be have end with me dying. And then they both suck in different ways. 
You know, my father had diabetes and watching him deteriorate was heartbreaking. But then when he died sooner than we expected him to die, it was shocking. And so I had a bit of both. And I don't know which is better or worse. I think it would kind of depend on the person. But one of the things I've found in my life when I've lost people, and I unfortunately have lost a lot of relatives and friends, the thing that I notice is that there's so much fear around death and anxiety about like, well, I don't want to see the person in the casket because I don't want to remember them like this, or I don't want to do this or stay away from there. And I, I, you know, I don't go to funerals or I don't go to cemeteries and all of that stuff. And that's okay. Everybody has to have and do, you know, what's comfortable for them or make the decisions that work for them. But for me, I think that there are so many gifts that if you, if you sort of walk into the experience, like with your whole heart and your spirit and your soul, that it's not as scary. I remember when my dad died and I was sort of in charge of everything and planning the funeral and all of these things. And thankfully we have um, a family friend that has a mortuary. So it kind of felt like planning it with a family member and they had said, okay, well, the casket's going to be open at this point, and then it'd be closed. And partly when someone has died, especially a parent, you're a little bit out of your mind. Like you're just in such immense pain and grief. So you don't make the same kinds of decisions. But at that time, I remember saying, well, I don't want them to close the coffin. I, I want it open. And they're like, okay, we'll close it here and then we'll reopen it there. And people were like, well, you know, some, I, I think my boyfriend at the time was like, well, why? And I said, because it just feels too final. I wanted to see my dad as long as I possibly could because I knew that that was going to be it. Once they closed that coffin, I would never see him again. Even though he was deceased, even though when you look at a, de a deceased body, the essence of their humanity and their soul, in my opinion, is gone. It's just gone. It's not like they look like they're sleeping. It kind of looks like, for lack of a better way of putting it, a wax dummy that kind of looks like your parent or whoever. But I needed that. And so many people have said, but don't you want to just remember them as they were? Those memories will never go away, ever. It's not like I'll forget what he looked like, alive. But I just wanted to hold on to be able to lay my eyes on this person who had given me life for as long as I possibly could. And so when Amy was telling me, and all of us who are listening, that she got to see her husband without struggle on her face, on, on his face, those are the beautiful gifts that death gives us. Because she could have said, I don't want to see him again. That's it. I'm done. But she didn't. And again, I'm not, I want to be sure to, to be clear about this. I'm not passing judgment on anybody who says, that's not my thing. I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. We each have to make our own decisions around these kinds of things. But like I said, none of us are getting out of this life alive. And we can either fear death of others, friends, loved ones, or we can say when it's here, Try to find the lessons and the beauty and the gifts. 
And I can tell you, there are many gifts from the loss of my dad. There are many gifts from the loss of my ex-boyfriend who was killed in the World Trade Center. And that was a sudden, like shocking international thing that happened. And we didn't know if he was dead or alive for about a month because nobody knew who was completely gone and who wasn't, who was in a hospital, who was here, who was there. So I guess the takeaway for this episode is to consider that yes, we have these glorious times with our friends and our family members, and we have these relationships and these connections that are so special in life, but in the loss, in the loss of life, after life, in death, the people that we loved, they continue to give to us just in different ways. Whether it's the memories or the little inside jokes like Amy mentioned, or something that reminds you, I once thought I smelled my dad in an elevator years after he was dead. And I just stopped in my tracks because I was just like, I just wanted to inhale that. And it's those kinds of things, while it's incredibly sad that I lost my dad at 24, I feel that it is a gift to keep going and live the best life that I possibly can instead of being so lost and so distraught that he's gone. It is so easy to lose yourself when someone dies. And that's okay to lose yourself, but you need to come back. And sometimes for me, when I, the way I comfort myself is I say, you know what, my dad no longer has to suffer. This family member or friend no longer has to suffer. Whatever you believe happens after life, I believe that there's no more suffering. So, Amy, <clears throat> from the bottom of my heart, I am so grateful that you shared this very personal and intimate story. I, I couldn't have done the kind of interview that just danced around the, the, the intimate details. It's a gift to receive a very special story like that, in my opinion. And the word gift almost sounds cliche, but I think it is. And I'm touched and I'm honored that Amy shared her experiences with loss, the sadness, the tragedy, and in the end, the magic. And there's always gonna be that with death and loss, always. We just have to see it and we just have to believe it's possible. Maybe a little corny, but I don't think so. There are gifts. We just have to find them. That's what I think anyway. That's my story and I'm sticking to it.